You're listening to Death of the Reader. Flex and Herds here for your murder mystery world tour. And Herds, it is time to begin what will be our last novel for 2022. Blackstone Fell by Martin Edwards, chapters 1 to 11. This is the third novel in the Rachel Savinak series. And uh, Herds. Yeah, what's up? You've given me quite <laughs> the doozy here. I know. I... Look, I I really enjoyed reading this novel. I just want to point out that there are so many deaths that are probably all murders. We don't, we don't even know. We don't even know. We've had like locked room murders. We've had in the past murders, way back when murders. We've had mm-hmm. weird family, probably for money related reason murders. We've had a murder occur literally in chapter 10. There are so many murders. People yeah. are murdering to cover up the murders. It's insane. I mean, one of, one of my favorite things about the stretch of murders that we get, and I know that there are many favorite things that we can have about this stretch of murders because they're phenomenal, is the way that Nell Fagan, who is our oh, original perspective in this story, we, we introduced to her while she is looking through the forests near Blackstone and a large boulder comes and crushes her tripod, and she's like, oh, whew, narrow escape. Then she gets to the road yeah. and nearly gets run over by a car and goes, oh, whew, narrow escape. And then finally, when she actually dies, it is not the boulder, but a small rock mm. beat against her head that kills her. There's like, there's a very neat uh, closing symbolism to that small yeah. character it's arc the, of It's Nels. the precise- the preciseness of, of the death that, that kind of matters there. Death sting, as it were. Now, I, speaking as someone who, like, I haven't read the first two novels in this series. When I yeah. popped into this, I said, wow, Nell Fagan is a really weird detective. She's, like, kind of awful. She seems smart, but not too smart. Like, what's going on here? Yeah. Really what this this series of, of chapters is, is, like, convincing Rachel to get involved and showing a lot of the desperation of Nell. She's Cornelia Grace to most of the people in the town at the start of the novel, and she's, like, forgetting her own oh, cover name like, a bunch. Yeah, it's, like, the first proper interaction she has is with someone saying Miss Grace, and she doesn't respond. She's like, oh, yeah, someone's just mm. shouting disgrace into the air. All of our heroes, um, Nell Fagan and, and Jacob Flint in particular, they're both trying to sort of investigate their own mysteries using deception and they're they're always called out Mm. i really love that this is a novel in which the the antagonists are smarter than most of our heroes like we're expecting rachel to to come in like a whirlwind and steal the show but like oh yeah all these other characters they they fail so that we can we can set the stakes high and set the sort of difficulty of the situation high um for our real detective to show how clever she is, which I which I love. It's also really good because Martin Edwards, one of the strengths that's very apparent in his work that I've read so far, is writing dialogue. It comes across so effortless the way that his characters like talk and interrupt one another and mishear each other. I love the sounds that they make. The way that he describes oh, yeah. people making like grunts and wheezes. Goodness, I should have written some of these examples down, but every time he he tries to describe a sound without actually using the the um is it the onomatopoeia of the sound, he he tries to describe it yeah. as, as flowery language as he can. And I always think of the exact sound that he's trying to 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 kind of get me to produce. I love it. Evocative dialogue is so hard to quantify, but it's a real you know it when you see it sort of thing, and I see it. <laughs> yeah, not for sure. 
as well as the kind of like gothic atmosphere that a lot of the Rachel Savinak series has had, like I've, I've read Mortmain Hall, I felt that it was leaning on what I see as a horror trope of the like weird town around yeah, the totally. sanatorium sort of thing where like the, the rest of the town is, is influenced by the insanity yeah. of this facility at, at the town center. It's like the, uh, the trope where the, the town grows up around the sanatorium or around the, the nobility and their black tower overseeing everything that the black stone tower, even, which is ridiculous. Characters keep saying how nothing happens in this town while everything is happening in this town. Oh, yeah. Like it's, it's, it's wonderful. I love it so much. The things happening standard in this town is the disappearance of two people from a small chamber <laughs> yes, with no exits yes. several years ago and several hundred years ago. We have like Edmund Mellor in like the 1600s and then Alfred Vegetables like <laughs> 10, 15 it's years ago. Vegetables? You know what? Yeah. I'm pretty sure that's his it's name. It's Le- <laughs> Lagoon, right? Lagoon? Lagoon? Close enough. I- it's legumes. I, I would say lagoon, although lagoon is also a fun one because it's like a pun on the, the, the like swamp that's behind them. I should say uh, <laughs> I definitely made a typo in my notes here. I definitely put a, a G instead of a J. Lagoon. That sounds like fun. <laughs> but but it's so interesting because the question then is like, did they disappear in the same way? Like 300 years apart. Is there something about this space? This is one of those fun things. And I mean, this is a trope that I've seen in, in novels before. The town is uh, located next to a, um, a, a a marsh, essentially. Yeah. Where if you drop somebody in there, you wouldn't you wouldn't hear from them again. So whenever something weird happens, if someone goes missing, if you lose your car keys, you say, "Oh well, they probably fell into the muck, into the mire, into the the disgusting, filthy pond out the back of the house there, which we know is deadly." And yet we continue to live by it because this is where we've always lived, you know, that sort of yeah, thing. Yeah. I, I love I love how we we get to deal with the politics both of the town and of London and looking at the the dangerousness of this place that's just off the beaten path. I think that's mm. the that's the fun thing about about this the, the locked room specifically is that we had yeah. one person disappear three hundred years ago, one person disappear seemingly in the same way sixteen years ago. Is it a cult? Is it something about like the the gatehouse is there something wrong with that place like yeah is there a curse well the, the the only kind of detail that i can think of that we get is that there's like this weird inscription around the fireplace uh which let me let me pull it up here the the inscription around the fireplace as as in the text mm-hmm. yep. i don't know what this is meant to say <laughs> Says A A B A A A B B A A B A A A B A B A A A A A B B B B B. Yeah, it sounds significant. No, one less B. One less B. Sorry, one too many Bs at the end. It's Ababab or whatever the hell. It's it's ridiculous. What is that? I don't know. Like, is this is this Martin Edwards trying to like visually depict with letters the way the carving looked? Is this like what the letters are carved into the side? It's so weirdly ambiguous, and whilst it frustrates me, I kind of love the atmosphere of it. it it's also weirdly specific that it's like only A's and B's. Like, it's it's bizarre. It's bizarre. Like whether it's a, a you know a religious thing or a cult or whatever the whatever the heck is going on here, clearly it's weird. Clearly it, it implies you know the history that is that is evident in the stones that built this place, that built the gatehouse and the tower. Yeah. Like 
obviously we're going to be dealing with, you know, we've just had a death. We've just had Malfagan's death. So we're dealing with people that are alive today, but whatever the like conspiracy is of this place, it has to go back at least 300 years, right? To some extent. Which is also like a very fun modern trend in crime fiction where like there's always the historical case that it ties in with, right? You know, Jane Harper's The Dry. We've got the flashbacks to Aaron Falk's time in school. I just spoke with Chris Hammer about his novel, A Tilt, and there's like three different time periods and looking how all of these disparate stories overlap. You know, it's such a tried and true facet of modern crime fiction and i'm so excited to see how martin edwards like pulls it into this very golden agey context yeah he's clearly having a good time tying together the different time periods with the, the timeless town of, of blackstone fell and also the different locations of like you know london and and the in the town you know trying to tie all of it together um i'm excited to see how in in the mystery section you try and tie all this together and tell us who the the true murderer is Uh-oh. because we are reading a murder mystery novel that there, there probably isn't a cult. It's true. Maybe not. There might be a cult. I mean, if there is, I need to know about it. But, you know. I suppose I need to figure that out. Yeah, you do. That, that said, we should wrap this here and head over to that mystery mm, section. We are talking Martin Edwards' Blackstone Fell, his latest novel in the Rachel Savinak series. And we'll be back with chapters 1 to 11 in just a second. You're on 2SER 107.3 for decades. One of Britain's most prolific thriller hallmarks has been the works of Dick Francis. Begun in 1962, the series has largely been an insider's reimagining of the world of horse racing. Dick Francis himself was a champion jockey and five years before his fiction career began had been the royal trainer, meaning the Queen Mother was always the first reader. Since his father's passing, Felix Francis has helmed the franchise, adding another 11 novels to a total of... 53 now, I think? Well, I always counted as 55, Matt Flex. It's nice to be here. Yeah, I mean, as, as you could tell, I'm joined by Felix Francis uh, and the latest iteration in the series, hands down, 60 years on from the debut uh, Dead Cert. It is wonderful to have you, Felix. Welcome to the show. Thank you. Before taking over as a writer, you'd obviously been involved with the family business for years, which I believe dates back to the bomb in Rat Race, which came out of your career as a physicist for which your mother became a pilot as well. Is the research for the novels these days quite as elaborate as it was back in the days of learning to fly planes? Oh, I like to think so, except it's much easier nowadays with the internet (laughs) and and emails. And unfortunately, uh, when I write to someone in the know, they they usually answer, uh, which is great. But yes, I grew up in uh, what I consider to be the greatest fiction factory of the 20th century. Uh, my mother and father worked on the books together, and I was eight years old when the first one was published, and there was one every year for the rest of the millennium, 39 in, in all at that time. Uh, so, yes, I, uh, uh, it was exciting time. To some extent, despite all of the interesting run-ins with technology and the way that things have aged in the novel, the core conundrum at the heart of many Francis novels has remained the same over its tenure, with impropriety often in the form of match-fixing in the world of racing. In some ways, you're cataloging almost the arms race between cheaters and the rules of the game. What sort of malpractice, I think, has surprised you the most in research since you took, forgive the pun, the reins of the franchise? Well, uh, there are certain things that surprise you. I mean, perhaps the most surprising things are those that happen not by design. I mean, there was a, an instance. I mean, I've been trying to get it in a book ever since. There was an instance at Newbury Racecourse in England where an underground electrical cable um, breaking it meant the whole ground became live. 
we all like to think that there is someone trying to tip the odds in their favour by foul means. Uh, racing is the, the, the best canvas in the world to against which to paint a story, uh, a murder mystery, because there's, uh, it's very competitive. There's lots of money floating around. Everyone tries to think they can beat the bookies, and yet everyone goes racing, you know, in England from royalty down to the man in the street. I mean, you don't need to know anything about racing in order to read one. I mean, you might learn a bit, but and it might help if you know which end of a horse eats and which end doesn't. <laughs> but um, but apart from that, I mean, people, some people have said, I oh, don't read your books because they're all about horses, but they're not about horses. They're about people. And Handstand certainly is about people. One thing I really liked about Sid in this novel was his arc from the beginning, bemoaning that he didn't treat his wife in the same way that he would a suspect, which is indicative of the problem he's walked himself into there, uh, followed by him kind of turning his normal investigation on its head, being like much more confrontational with his suspects, you know, yelling to a large crowd, the person that he's quietly looking for do you think subtlety is overvalued by most detectives in our genre well no i wouldn't say that in fact uh, most of my detectives have been uh, quite the reverse of sid insofar that they've been attempting to remain in the shadows and and uh, do their investigating without being too overt but sid has always in all the books he's um, he's had a bit of a reputation that beating up sid halley was was never going to stop him investigating and the harder you hit him, the harder he'd come after you, and in the hope and expectation that it, that would bring them out into the open and, or maybe uh, encourage them to make a mistake, which would then uh, he, he could then uh, latch onto. So it was quite refreshing to have Sid being allowed to be so overt. Well, yeah, I mean, one of the challenges for Sid is also the, that so often in the crimes that you deal with in these novels, it, they're not one man's game. It takes more than one person to kind of cheat at the races. And in some ways, Sid, whilst being unable to kind of administer the changes that he needs uh, in his own marriage, has to kind of be the arbiter of justice for this entire ring of people involved. Is it fair that someone who can't keep himself in line is trying to wrangle, uh, wrangle this, you know, gambling ring? Well, yes and no. I mean, Sid, Sid is very. Uh, loyal to those he feels are not responsible. It's fair to say that the that some of the the people involved are not in, involved by choice, but by coercion. And and Sid believes that if he simply goes to the authorities and lays everything in in front of them, the authorities have a a, a track record of of coming down on everyone hard and not taking into the account the fact that someone is being um, blackmailed or uh, or into doing something, and Sid is very conscious that um, there, but for the grace of God, goes him, and that if he'd come across uh, bad influences when he'd been a young rider, he would have may have got himself into the same state. Therefore, he's very conscious of not landing those who are not really responsible. In the dock. So we started talking about the research that went into these novels, and I'd like to know who you were playing against when the Scrabble points debate at the end of chapter nineteen came up. <laughs> well, that one was a, a reprise of my of a game of Scrabble I had with my wife many years ago, 
when I was uh, stunned and shocked. But yeah, it is. Uh, that was fun to, to put uh, the Scrabble in and, and sit in it. What I wanted it to do, what I hoped that it did, was it showed that the competitiveness of Sid as an ex-jockey, as an ex-champion jockey, coming to the fore uh, over something as, something as mundane as a game of Scrabble and, and the last word. And I won't tell them what the last word is. They'll have to read the book. But it, my whole life has been bound up in, in this uh, in mysteries. The one person we think of most when we come to talk about the golden age of crime fiction is Agatha Christie. Well, in my life, I've been lucky enough to make tea for Agatha Christie and met her on several occasions. I would love to be able to meet her again now and to ask her about writing books because I was only 17 at the time and therefore, you know, had no thought that I would once be plying my wares in the same ways that she did for so long. But it was, but life has been exciting in that respect. I've met all sorts of wonderful writers. I mean, Phyllis James, P.D. James was a was a dear friend, uh, and 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 Peter James, no relation, is a is a friend now as Lee and Lee Child, and and uh, had the fortune of having dinner with James Patterson a couple of years ago, just before lockdown. And so you know, it is. It is a, a life which uh, is exciting, and I hope that what I write um, makes people who read it feel that they're in an exciting environment as well. Yeah, well, I mean, you've spoken to one of the great truths of the crime fiction community, I think, like in that it is very much a community in that sense. So many of the authors that you know I love reading these days are friends with one another, and every event that I've been to, it's all. Yeah, you, you must never, you must never confuse the fact that we're colleagues. We're not. We're competitors. <laughs> uh, we, we may like each other, but we don't. But we don't like each other to the extent that we're desperate for their books to do better than ours. Let me tell you. Mm. <laughs> yes, every every novel is merely just a, a murder that didn't happen to another author. Yes, well, maybe. Uh, no, over, overall, it, it's. It, I mean, I'm a member of the uh, Crime Writers Association, and uh, which is a uh, like the, the the Crime Writers Union, and uh, I'm also a member of something called the Detection Club, which yes. is invitation only in London. And um, I'm actually the first son to be a member of. of um, uh, to all, so had a parent as a member of the Detection Club. Felix, thank you so much for joining us here on the program. It has been wonderful having you on and getting to read hands down and pick your brains about it. Well, it's uh, very kind of you to have me on, and I hope uh, that anyone listening to this will will consider going out and reading hands down because uh, some people say that um, to me that I read your father's books, but I don't read yours. And I <laughs> Who say, says that? Who says well, that? And they say things like... <laughs> I don't want to. Uh, I don't want to in any way diminish my love of your father's books, and I try and say to them that reading mine won't do that. I wouldn't write them if I didn't feel I was up to standard. So what a, give it a try. It's, it's I agree. Answer. I agree. We'll have links on the podcast if you want to get yourself a copy of the book. And thank you to DMCPR and Simon Schuster for the copy that I have on the table in front of me here. Felix, thank you once again for your time. Thank you very much, Felix. Felix Francis there, talking hands down. We'll be back with more of Martin Edwards' Blackstone Fell in just a second. Stick around. You're listening to Death of the Reader. 
Flex and Herds here for your murder mystery world tour. Uh-oh. And we are continuing our ventures into Martin Edwards' Blackstone Fell, chapters 1 to 15. I am solving to this novel. 1 to 11? You said 15. Did I? Yes. You've gone mad. I, <laughs> we need to commit you to a senatorium, Flex. I genuinely don't. Th- you I'm, know what? You know what? It's great. Because either- I'm messing with my either, head here. Either- you did say 11, in which case I'm messing with you. Or you said 15, in which case I've already messed with you. And we're all going insane. Oh, God. This anyway. Is, <laughs> this is not- I, I don't like the foreshadowing this is, this this is, is doing for my solution here. Chapters 1 to 11 of Blackstone Fell by- 1 to 11 Mar- of Blackstone Martin Fell. Edwards. It's going to be great. Flex is in the solving chair, and I need you to tell me about all the people who have died and who killed them and how. All right. Because there's a lot of death in this novel. There's the two locked room murders. Easy. There's Vernon Murray. There's Nell it's Fagan. Easy. There's Vernon's mother. There's, there's a whole bunch of deaths. Easy. What's easy about it? Tell me. What is- It's, it's really straightforward. Is it really? I, wow. What all of insult. the A's and B's are a, are a chant that okay. a seance in the 1600s like turned Edmund Mellor into a tangible ghost mm-hmm, mm-hmm. who has been going around on a quiet, murderous spree. People have just been dying. But because, you know, this is kind of pre-modern medicine, people just think they're regular deaths. Mm. And then- Modern medicines arrived in the town. Young upstart doctors arrived in the town, and suddenly Edmund Mellors realized that his uh, his prey mm. is about to catch onto him wow. and counter seance him out of existence. You know, Flex. I I sometimes think that you you should stop trying to catch the real murderer, the real mystery in the first the first part, because you know we do three parts. You have a chance with episodes mm-hmm. one and two to try and catch the murderer. That's true. But you just keep blowing me away with how accurate oh. your theories are. Yeah, thank you, ghosts. Tying the seance, tying the spiritualism and, and the Christian myth of this story to your to your theory, truly a, a masterstroke here. So I guess I my know. question is, Edwin Mellor- Ronald Knox would be so proud of him. Is a ghost because he was chanted by Abab to become a ghost. That's right. Is, uh, is Alfred Vegetables also a ghost? Would they both turn into ghosts? No, I think Alfred f- Vegetables no? was trying to exorcise oh. uh, Edmund Mellor, but was stopped at the last minute. And it was so last minute that he was in the chamber reading the inscription Ola, when Mellor finally caught on to it. That's what he sounded like. I'm just imitating yeah. the chant. Okay, cool. <laughs> uh, awesome. I love it. So it's ghosts. That's the real murder mystery. So I guess my question is, uh, v- Vernon Murray is, is the real- the real kickstart of this chain of events would he be, he comes to Nell Fagan. He says, my, my mother is His mother's dead. dead yeah. I think it was my father, but he has a real good alibi. She went to the sanatorium for premium treatment and then she, she, she died semi mysteriously. Everyone else seems to think it's nothing. You think it's ghosts. Vernon Murray thinks it was, is his father, but Vernon Murray is also Killed. He, much how Nell, you know, has a couple near misses and then is murdered in a cave. Vernon Murray has a near miss with a car and then is murdered inside the steel cave <laughs> that is the London uh, train network. Is this like werewolf in London, but it's ghosts? Is that what this is? I mean, listen, if we're dealing with ghosts, I think we've also got to accept that possession could be a thing. I don't okay. think that the spell, uh, for lack of a better word, that allowed Enbid Mellor to turn into a ghost would let him leave Blackstone. Because, mm. you know, we have to maintain some level of separation. So he's probably possessing someone. Who is he possessing then? Oh, I'm going to say Vernon Murray. Vernon Murray possessed him to his own death. Is that what you're saying? Yep. I think what's happened is that uh, Vernon Murray 
went to Blackstone, mm. you know, investigating his own mother's death before summoning Nell Fagan, but was possessed while there. And he's now part of the, the new scheme mm. that's dragging victims for the bored ghost of Edmund Mellor to feast on. Okay. I like this. I like this. So wait, who's part of the conspiracy now? Who's serving the ghost of Edmund Mellor? Because Vernon is dead. Vernon was hit by a train. This is all a cover story, right? Because now if anyone sees Vernon Murray around, they're going to be committed to the sanatorium. Mm, okay. I like it. This is a good theory. I, I'm enjoying this. So how then How then do our uh, our, our weird group, I've, I've called them the weird group. I've got the gang, the town, the weird, and the dead. There's a lot of characters in the dead right now. Yeah, there's a lot of characters um, in the dead. <laughs> there's going to be more. Although you are missing you are missing in this character list that we have up here, you are missing Ormond Weaver. Yeah. So the, the story about Ormond Weaver- is that he was he was like milking a bank for its funds, throwing people under the bus, yep. ruined the life of a guy called Nathan Hart, mm-hmm. and then went off to Austria and died of dip- diphtheria, which sucks. It sounds like it sucks. Oh, I mean, there's no way he's actually dead. You don't think so? If he's if he's died off screen, he's not really dead. That's true. That's the that's the rules. It's true. The the character that that went into the gatehouse in, in the 1600s. And, and died in a locked room, not dead? Well, he's a ghost, right? He died off screen, so he's not really dead. Okay, that makes sense. Every, every prediction here has a level of consistency. I'm sure it does. I'm sure it does. I just think you're an insane person. Maybe we need to commit you to the sanatorium, as I was saying earlier. Maybe so. That's clearly what I'm, what I'm learning here. As a finance man, mm. he was charged with fraud, and there was a lot of mention of other characters like gambling away their wealth sure. in the story. At the very least, um, I think that the reason Vernon Murray ends up dead is because he was catching on to whatever weird paper trail of finance crime uh, is is going on fueling the tourism scheme that is sending ghosts out to Blackstone Mm. for the hauntings of uh, Edmund Mellor. So I guess guess my other question then is, uh, is Edmund Mellor, the 1600s ghost boy, uh, the the one who killed Nell Fagan with a gloved hand. I'm a little I'm a little torn on on Nell Fagan because mm. I mean if it was a ghost we wouldn't need gloves so why include the detail about gloves? Well, clearly right? it's to obfuscate the fact that it's a, a ghostly hand. The the ghost hand has the glove on it so that in the theatrical version when this is turned into a movie, yeah, obviously you can see the glove but you can't see the ghost arm that's underneath the glove. Oh, Does ghost ghost can use telekinesis? Obviously, it's true to hold a glove over their little ghost hand. But please tell me, what <laughs> what what body might might this uh, ghost boy be possessing at the time of this murder? It can't be Doctor Caritas. Is 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 my first observation. Right, he is clearly too suspect. <laughs> right, like okay, he's the sure. first character that Nell Fagan meets in the story. Right after one attempt on her life, followed by a feigned second. He, he does almost hit her with his car, which is yeah, pretty like, great. <laughs> you know. That's 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 just too much. Okay, that's too much. Mm. Not to mention, do you really think that Edmund Mellor would have would would have the skills to drive? I don't think so. I think that's ridiculous. There's only one plausible explanation, Herds, for who the killer can be. Mm-hmm. Who is it, Flex? It's Harold Vegetables. Harold Vegetables. He's such a nice man. Yes. There's there's only one explanation for how a ghost hunter could have been stopped so last minute on their quest, and it's if their brother. Was there helping God. them out, but was possessed and betrayed that them. That makes sense. You know, we have this mention when we first meet Harold in the story that Nell felt as if she was being hypnotized because Harold is clearly possessed mm. and the ghost energy mm. is beaming out of his eyes. It's more magic stuff. And that's yeah. 
Yeah, that's what sways Nell. Yeah, when when Harold like waves at her in the street, it's actually him giving her the, the command phrase exactly. to kill again, clearly. Absolutely. And I think that what we've come across here is that Harold uh, is, is currently trying to cover up what happened both under the influence of the ghost and on it, of his own accord. I don't even know if it's the, the same consciousness of the man. Maybe at night he's taken over by Ed- Edmund Mellor, uh, but by day he doesn't actually know what crimes he's committed. And there are two different sprees of crime, one covering up what happened and uh, one trying to uncover it, mm. only for the dramatic irony to be that both were him. I definitely like the uh, the duality there. We've got the you know 1600s versus the 1900s. We've got London versus exactly. the, the town and the swamp. We've got the duality of Harold Lejeune. I think this all makes sense. Uh, I assume so. Yeah, I think we've got this me. book dead to rights, pun intended. Yeah, I agree. I think we've done an excellent job of solving this together as a team. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> Well, <laughs> next, next week, week what are we, what are right, we doing? Me, how, how much ground do I have to cover to salvage this sinking ship? It's going to be a lot. I, there is one particular murder that I think you'll be very excited for that, that needs, it needs to be part. It needs to be part of this story. So we are going to be covering the Blackstone fell all the way up to the end of chapter 23, Ooh. which is about 74% of the way through the novel, according to my e-reader. I think it's going to be fun. I think you'll enjoy seeing Rachel rip through the town like a storm. And can I just quietly say that Clifford Truman may be my favorite character in the book. He's fantastic. Herds, thank you very much for suffering through my incredible theory this week. Thank you for supplying such wonderful entertainment for me to work with. I couldn't have asked for a better theory, frankly. Next week on the show, we will be going up until chapter 23 inclusive here on your Murder Mystery World Tour. It's our second last episode of the year, so don't miss out. This is Death of the Reader here on 2SER 107.3, and we'll see you then. 